This is Tush. And I welcome you to Tushalicious Talk, an Oklahoma City podcast for titillating women, tantalizing conversation. And I thank you in advance for allowing me to be your one-stop shop advocacy connection. Hello again. Hey, 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 hey. Um, this is Jackie again, and I'm doing Tushlicious Talk. My nickname is Tush, and I'm also uh, the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma County um, co-president. And the other co-president is over here. She is May Landwer, and um, she's also a school counselor. So interested in her perspective on today's topic. And then again, we have lovely Stephanie Henson, who is the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma State uh, vice president. And so what we are talking about today is education mainly. Um, but before we get into it, we'll go ahead and uh, I'll let Stephanie do it. Another quick introduction again, as always, and then for May to kind of tell you guys what her credentials are. Yeah, thanks, I'm Stephanie Henson. I do have, uh, I guess I since we're talking education today, I am a former school teacher as well and have had the opportunity to teach in both the United States and Canada. I taught at private school in Canada at both, and there, because I was at a private school, I was able to teach um, all grades. I sort of had the opportunity to work with a lot of different ages. And then um, here in the States, I taught both speech and theater education at the high school level. And I also taught English language arts at the high school level as well. And, uh, and of course, brought up two kids through the public schools here in Oklahoma. And I um, am so grateful and appreciative to all those, all of their teachers and all the folks who are still out there and teaching and love our good educators. And well, I'm May Landwer. I'm the other co-president of the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma County. And I'm currently an instructional coach. So I kind of teach the teachers um, how to teach, which is important right now where we have so many um, emergency certified uh, teachers who never got to do student teaching or go through you know, the teacher training um, in college. And I've taught um, for both public and, and private school, kind of the same situation as Stephanie, where at private school, I was able to teach multiple grade levels. So I've done a little bit of everything from third grade up to high school and um, spent most of my years teaching in the classroom in the, at the uh, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade level um, and taught all subjects, but mostly language arts. And we even had the opportunity to be at the same, or, yeah, we were, yeah, someone, we've been, we've done a little teaching in one of the same schools. That's right. <laughs> Which was yes. one of our connections. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, critical race theory is a big thing right now. And uh, House Bill 1775 is already law. Um, but going into this legislative season, we have Senate Bill 348. Um, and I am going to go ahead and just read it out loud. It's only two pages um, so it's not too horrible, but I would like to get your both of your opinion on this bill and um, like your personal opinion. And then also as a teacher, what your opinion on it is, because I hear a lot of teachers um, saying that they feel like um, the House Bill 1775 restricts them and this one is going to restrict them. And then also. Um, they feel like it's a reason why we don't have very many teachers in Oklahoma, why everybody is leaving. So what the impact of it will be. So 
it says uh, being enacted by the people of the state of Oklahoma. Section one, new law, a new section of law to be codified in Oklahoma statutes as section blah, 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 unless there is a created a duplication in numbering reads as follows. As used in this section, race or sex stereotyping means ascribing character traits, values, moral or ethical codes, privileges, status or beliefs to a race or sex or to an individual because of his or her race or sex. And race or sex scapegoating means assigning fault, blame, or bias to a race or sex or to an individual because of his or her race or sex. It similarly encompasses any claim that consciously or unconsciously and by virtue of their race or sex, members of any race are inherently racist or are inherently inclined to oppress others or that members of a sex are inherently sexist or inclined to oppress others. Notwithstanding any other provision of the law, every agency or department of the state, county or municipality or political subdivision shall be prohibited from adopting a policy or training materials to promote race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating. Nothing in this section prevents agencies or departments of this state from promoting racial, cultural, or ethnic diversity or inclusiveness, provided such efforts are consistent with the requirements of this section. Section two, it is being immediately necessary for the prevalent I'm sorry, for the preservation of the public peace, health or safety, an emergency is hereby declared to exist by reason whereof this act shall take effect and be in full force from and after its passage and approval, meaning immediately if it goes into law. And I do realize that I have just said a mouthful, a couple of mouthfuls. <laughs> so, um, and, and so Age Bill 1775 kind of read a little bit like this as well. Um, so I guess let's start at um, maybe the race or sex stereotyping and then the scapegoating. Um, how does that affect teaching history or even teaching civics or teaching period in Oklahoma? Well, what I've seen now, just even after um, the passage of uh, House Bill 1775, is teachers are afraid they're going to get in trouble for teaching just the same thing that they taught last year. Um, we had uh, conversations before February 1st about, well, how do we do Black History Month this year? Like, do we have to change anything? Are we going to get in trouble? So it's, it is definitely on teachers' minds. And when you said that that could be one of the reasons that we um, are losing teachers, I can tell you is definitely a reason. It's just one more thing added to their plates and one more thing that they have to worry about. And it's very... The law itself is pretty vague, so you kind of don't know exactly what you may or may not get in trouble for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so Veronica, v Veronica, I want to say her last name is Leisure from CARE, Oklahoma, C-A-I-R. 
she was here, I want to say last week or the week before that. And um, um, of course, that is a Muslim advocacy group. She was saying that it would make it difficult for teachers to teach to to teach about Malcolm X. Um, and so I don't ever remember learning about Malcolm X in the first place, obviously, <laughs> because um, of his stance on things, which, you know, I feel like there was um, rhetoric to say that he was like this horrible person. But then when you actually read about it, he was just trying to make things fair, you know. And so I'm saying that to say there's supposed to be a clause of comfort for students. Like students have the right to be comfortable in their education experience. And um, let me say also the kids came home, fourth grade kids came home and they were saying uh, the teachers made us read the N word. And I'm like, what? And so, of course, they keep talking and talking and talking. And the word that they are talking about is Negro. And they were like, but this white lady was saying Negro and she was reading Negro to us. And they were clearly not comfortable. <laughs> so that is where the disparity in comfort, whose comfort are we talking about? Um, wh- how, when, when you're saying scapegoating, who's getting to scapegoat what here? You know, so I'm very interested in even as an English teacher, how do you define that unambiguousness, I guess, is the word I want to say? Yeah, no, and it's interesting, and I do appreciate so much May's perspective because you're currently working in education. I it was enough years ago that I taught English And, you know, we did have um, books that included the N-word. And I find myself thinking it was such a different era. It was was a sense, you know, when I taught at Westmore High School uh, in the English classroom, part of our curriculum was To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Atticus Finch says in that book, I mean, the lesson in To Kill a Mockingbird regarding the N-word is when Scout uses the word and Atticus says, we don't use that word, Scout. That's common. And so when you read that book, you re- you reflect on what had been the norm in Alabama in the 1930s is no longer the norm. We don't use that word. So it's a strong, you know, but here was what was interesting because I do remember, I, I do remember a student who came to me and, and didn't want to read the book and that's okay too. We, you don't, you didn't have to, they had alternative curriculums, you know, you could read a different book. I mean, that's, so there was so much, we, we empower our students, we empower our teachers to make those decisions on. Um, and, and that was true then. It was true when I taught 20 years ago. That was, gosh, that's been over 20 years ago that I was teaching To Kill a Mockingbird at, at Westmore. And it's, um, it's lovely to feel empowered as a teacher. It's lovely to feel empowered as a learner and as a student and to realize if I don't feel comfortable, I can read a different book. It was interesting. I remember uh, she chose to go ahead and and read the book with it. Like it was an interesting conversation. I think once she realized that we were taking her seriously too, you know, you don't have to read this book. And it's, I, so I don't know. It's an, that I just feel like it's a, it is a different era. And then that's why I appreciate May's perspective because that was not something that we, we didn't feel restricted in that way with. Um, yeah. 
yeah. 20 years ago. We didn't. Right. Right. And, and even saying that it's a different era, I was thinking they were talking about the hard R on the end. And then they, I'm like, listen, tell me what word. And they were like, well, it's Negro. And I'm like, ah, but they were still just extremely uncomfortable with it. So um, it, how do we teach historical facts and also not uh, or, or abide by House Bill 1775. I think that is the the end that we're trying to get to. What how what what do teachers need to do? How are they going to accomplish that? Um, the short answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it it all kind of depends on who you ask, honestly. Um, and I had a similar situation um, with uh, the Jackie Robinson's story that we were reading. And this was maybe six or seven years ago. And it had that word in it. And I just, I told the class before we started, I said, there's a word in here. I'm not going to say it. And, you know, you don't have to say it in your head when you're reading in your head, you know, just skip that whole sentence if you want to. And then we just went on um, from there. And Something that I found, which was not the case in the situation you were talking about, Jackie, but a lot of times it's um, the the parents who are uncomfortable and the kids don't see a lot of the things that we talk about as, as any big deal. Um, so that's, I think, where it gets blown out of proportion a lot of times. I was just thinking that because um, there's several um, bills on uh, trying to ban books at schools. And so in, in one of them, I don't have it with me. I'll put it in the chat, I guess, or not the chat, but I'm thinking I'm on Zoom. I'll put it in the, uh, on the, uh, on whatever the comments. Um, but it was basically saying like, you know, if the parents are uncomfortable with it, then they get to choose that the book gets banned. And so that makes me think, okay, you're going to ban pretty much everything, especially in today. We, we live in, what is it? Cancel culture or, is that what it's called? Everybody's unsatisfied with something. So what are you going to end up with? Exactly. I'm doing a jigsaw puzzle right now that's a banned books jigsaw puzzle. I got it for Christmas. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I was counting the number of them that I had read on the banned books list, books that have been banned at some point, you know, it's kind of, and uh, of course, Mockingbird's on there. I'd read 17 of the books that are on the banned books jigsaw puzzle, and I want to read them all. I thought that would be a good, that would be a good, since you and I've been involved in yeah. reading groups together, that would be good to read all the, Let's do. do one year where we Let's just read all the banned books while reading. I found myself remembering, and this wasn't on the Band Books Jigsaw Puzzle, but uh, also teaching Fahrenheit 451. Did you ever have to teach that, May? Yeah. And do you yeah. remember the part in that book where, I mean, it's sad because it's a dystopian novel, and it's a novel in which books were being burned. And and so that's Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature that a book will burn at Fahrenheit 451. And there's a whole part in that story of individuals who memorized entire books so that the messages and those stories would continue to resonate even when the oppressive mm -hmm. dystopian government was keeping people down. The end, It is a story of the indomitable spirit. And so many of these books are books and stories of indomitable spirits mm -hmm. that can't be kept down. And it's, and you know, Fahrenheit 451, what a genius book, but, yes. and what, how beautiful the idea of people. And I remember, and I remember, cause I, 
feel like I first read that book, Fahrenheit 451, when I was in college. So again, this was late 80s, early 90s. And I was talking to a friend who taught at OU. He taught social um, and philosophy of social and philosophy of education. Sociology and philosophy of education is what he taught. Uh, he's a John Dewey scholar. And it's the John Dewey, which by the way, in Mockingbird 2, they say, uh, she always talks about, they taught the Dewey Decimal System. I think she was talking about the, the golden age of John Dewey educators. And we came up, I think, through that era in which we felt so empowered as kids of the 70s when education and difficult discussions and difficult ideas were being had, that was empowering as a student to know that, hey, we can disagree. This is, I think, why I'm a member of the league right now, because it's the idea that we can disagree and make one another better. It's like that sharpening the saw idea. That's what I want to happen in our classrooms. The same thing that goes on, the kinds of discussions we have with the League of Women Voters. We sharpen one another by disagreeing with one another. It empowers us. And it's that indomitable spirit that happens in in a lot of these books, interestingly, I think it's exactly. <laughs> it's the idea of the indomitable spirit that uh, shines exactly. over and over again. So I don't I don't really know why we want to ban that. But <laughs> I don't know why we want to ban the indomitable spirit. Yeah, yeah very, very cliche is, you know, experience is the best teacher. But when you look into experience is the best teacher, the reason that it's the best teacher is because of failure. And if you don't fail, then you don't learn more and more things that you need in order to success, you know, before success comes a ton of failure. So in relating that to a conversation, uncomfortableness is the failure. It's the failure of whatever is that it, the failure that we did of things that we did not learn. It's not that we're an actual failure as a human being. It's just that I don't know what you've been through. You don't know what she's been through, so forth and so on. And that kind of makes uncomfort, um, a prerequisite for growth, I would even say. Yeah, that is how we grow. And when you talk about feeling empowered, how unempowering would it feel to have adults tell you as a student, you're, you're too fragile to discuss this topic. You, you can't handle this, this conversation that happens in this book. Yeah. Without flying off the handle. Yeah. And how do we, the, a lot of times the political, not even just the political, but adult conversations, people don't know how to disagree and they yell at each other and there's no absolute communication. There's no one trying to understand what the other person is going through. If we're about to raise a generation that is not going to have a simple discussion at school and learn how to disagree. Look at how divisive the political climate already is. What is the end game going to be in 40 years? What is the result going to look like? It is, it, it, you know, we're, there's this whole push for the DEI push, diversity, education, and inclusiveness. Is equity, that, uh, equity, equity and inclusion. Equity. You know, if, if we're pushing for this, it's almost like these bands and even the the book bands and the um, critical race theory. Um, and not even only that, um, I even remember reading 
uh, the thing about the drag queen story hour, you're going to get a felony if you do a drag queen story hour. Listen, you don't have to like transgender people and you definitely don't have to buy a ticket to the drag queen story hour. But why in the world would you charge them with a felony because you don't like what they're doing? That That is atrocious. But anyways, my point is, if we are making those things a felony and we're saying that, no, we can't talk about these things in school. What seriously is the world going to look like in about 40 years? A world full of people who can't hold discussions with each other. It's already difficult enough. So anywho, (laughs) um, I had sent these ladies a, uh, an op ed that I ran across um, let me see if I can rem- find who wrote it. Um, it was in the Oklahoman. Um, let me see. I'm sorry. It's a guest columnist. I can't find her name right now, but it says the way to cut Oklahoma abortion rates is to boost education and health spending. And I just thought that it was very relevant because of course we are, we have the ban on abortion right now in Oklahoma. Unfortunately, we have all these horrible statistics. We're number 48 in education. We're number one in domestic violence. We're number one in uh, adverse childhood experience. We are, I know for black women, we are number one, I believe, actually in the world for um, pregnancy mortality rates. Um, I mean, I could probably keep going. We're number one in incarceration for women. We're number two for men. We might be number three for men right now. But anywho, um, if we've got all these horrible statistics, why are we trying to bring more kids here? Why are we trying? And and on top of that, why are we trying to bring kids that are not wanted here? That just does not seem like a very good moral argument in my opinion. And um, people are more than welcome to uh, to tell me that I'm wrong on that or, or give me um, some type of argument against it. I'm absolutely willing to, to hear them out. But just in my opinion, I feel like it's completely immoral to try to force someone to have a kid in a state that's not providing for the kids or that's I'm putting how many kids, I, I don't remember the foster care um, statistics that we have right now, but we've got so many kids in foster care in Oklahoma. Um, and we have a foster care to prison pipeline in Oklahoma. Like, wh- why in the world? But back to this woman's op-ed. Um, she says that Oklahoma is one of 29 states in the U.S. that does not mandate sexual health education and whose regulations on sexual health curricula limit programs to abstinence-only education and heteronormative material. However, the Annenberg National Health Communication Survey cites that only 39% of adults find abstinence-only education to be effective. So that's leaving 61% of adults out there. Um, and, and, and I want to stress the word adults out there because that's over 18 and we all know that um, underage sex is a very real thing. Um, So 61% of adults are not um, actively abstinent. Um, So that relates to Oklahoma is ranked number four for teen birth. And then when you factor in race into that, then of course it's more prominent in the black Hispanic and native community. And I believe those statistics are in that 
op-ed as well. Again, I will post it. Um, But just wanted to know, as educators, what is your opinion on this (laughs) op-ed? I think it's it's spot on, unfortunately. And sex ed shouldn't be a taboo thing. I mean, they're talking about our bodies. You have to know your own body. I mean, that's part of your health. And when we are also low in healthcare, it's even more important for people to know how their bodies work and what to look for if something is wrong. I mean, it's just basic. It's, it's just basic health. You know, it's not, it's not anything immoral or trying to lead these kids down a certain path. You know, it's just for them to know about their own bodies. And yeah, it would be nice to say, oh, well, parents, parents should do that. And and I agree, parents should, but let's be real. A lot of parents don't. A lot of parents are uncomfortable talking about it because their parents were uncomfortable talking to them about it and they don't know how to talk to their kids about it. And that's not to shame anyone, you know, that's, that's nobody's fault, but it still has to be talked about. Teenagers are having sex. Preteens are having sex. I've worked in several middle schools and if you don't think 11 year olds are having sex, I'm here to tell you, you are are. mistaken. Mm -hmm. You are mistaken. Mm -hmm. And they've, They've got to be able to learn about their own bodies, just even from a health perspective, if nothing else. So do you know what sex ed looks like at the schools that you have taught? And even you, Stephanie, even here, or do you know the difference between the United States and Canada, or even not not just the United States, Oklahoma, and whatever school you were at in Canada, what the sex ed education talk looks like? I don't remember the sex education program in the school in Canada. Um, I was in the theater program, and so we. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> we, uh, but, I, so, but I do. When you talk historically, however, uh, even in Oklahoma and the differences in policies in Oklahoma over the years, I I want to honor for just a little bit in this conversation my grandmother because she was born in rural Oklahoma in 1926. And again, you know how I said, I feel like I came of age in this golden age in which people, I, I kind of the Donahue age, you know what I mean? Like, thanks to Donahue and, and podcasts and just information being afforded us, we were talking more about sex ed for sure when I was growing up, I think, than, well, I know, than what my grandmother had. Uh, she, you know, it was before Roe v. Wade. It was before, um, you know, her education was just not... Uh, again, when you talk about the importance of education, she was very clear that she didn't get a lot of good education on a lot of important points on mm-hmm. how to keep herself well and safe in the world, uh, how to prevent pregnancies. And she was a mother at 17. You know, my grandmother was a mother at 17, and she didn't feel comfortable talking to her own children even about sex education, like you were saying. But by the time that I came back to Oklahoma uh, to go to college, I had the opportunity to live with my grandmother. So when we start talking about sharing stories with one another and the importance of storytelling, grandmommy told me about what it looked like in this dark age of not good education, not good sex education, which which I worry again that we're kind of coming back to. Again, if you read Robert Putnam, we had these really great educational 
historically, we had better education at a certain time. And now in Oklahoma, it's when you've got abstinence only in education. Uh, but anyway, Grandmommy said, and I'm going to reference Caitlin Flanagan. I, she's a journalist. I don't know if she writes. I can't remember if it's the Atlantic or the Washington Post. But I've been listening to her discussions. And what what really chilled me was that she told me something I'd heard my grandmother say to me about how misinformed mm-hmm. she was. In other words, people seek education information on how to stay safe, especially if they're becoming sexually active. And she said the misinformation was so bad back in the day. And one of the things that Caitlin Flanagan says that underscores what my grandmommy taught me was we didn't know, but people tried to figure out, again, because they wanted to be safe. And Grandmommy said, we tried so many things. She was a young married woman, even, to try to prevent pregnancy. And we thought that douching, for example, was a way to prevent pregnancy after we'd had sex. Caitlin Flanagan talks about the number of women who found themselves hospitalized after douching with Lysol. And she actually says that if you go back and look at certain Lysol ads, she said, I didn't even believe this originally. Now, my grandmommy never said Lysol, but she did say douching. But I just thought that is what we're looking at with myths and disinformation regarding what is safe and for our bodies. And if we're not teaching our kids what sexual health is, then and I think my grandmommy told me that because she was she wanted us she was excited about the progress in our world she was excited about the progress in education she was excited that we were with the women's movement for sure we were and and Donahue again the shout out to Donahue but we were we were Thanks to Donahue that she felt like she could tell me that story. And I want to tell that story. It's a personal story from my family. And it stuck with me. You know, it stuck with me about the importance of education. And I think she was she was proud of me because I was becoming an educator. You know, I lived with her during those years that I was learning the importance of education. And she wanted me to know how noble the role of educator is because it prevents when we teach our children better they'll do better we'll do we'll have better sexual health Mm -hmm. you know better you do better yes when you know better you do better my angelo and lee roland shout out to both of them you know what i mean yeah when you know better you do better so thank you to all the educators who are sharing the importance of sexual health and well-being yeah well and that's an important point because whereas there was a lot of um lack of information at that time, I think there's almost too much information now. Because if you go on the internet and you go to WebMD, you have all kinds of things wrong with you by the time you're done, you know, going down that rabbit hole. And so, yeah, kids can look things up on the internet, but we have no idea if it's accurate or not. And they have no idea if it's accurate or not. And so there still needs to be that that uh, balance in the middle, like you were saying, you know, just a few years ago, where we don't have no information at all, but we also don't have all this random false information floating around out there. And the kids don't know the difference. That's why we need the good educators. Yeah, we need the good educators who can really, you know, yeah. And, And you've also got the aspect of kids that are afraid to talk to their parents about sex, but they still need somebody. They need to know that there is someone that they can talk to 
and give their questions to that is not going to judge them about whatever they're going through about what, you know, of course we want to try to guide them to wait, but if they've made a decision in in their head, we want to be able to give them the most accurate information. Um, One thing that I tell my daughters is I feel like there is not enough emphasis put on how deadly pregnancy can be, especially for a black woman. Again, I just said a minute ago, I, I, Please, you can Google this, but I, I'm, I, I'm like 100% sure that I'm right, that Oklahoma, Black women in Oklahoma have the highest death rate in pregnancy in the world. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. And so when we think about pregnancy, a lot of times it's all this, oh, it's so sweet type of, oh, I can't wait to be pregnant, have this baby bump and the joys of being pregnant and so forth and so on. No, pregnancy can be a very horrible thing. And postpartum too. I was seeing in the news the story of postpartum psychosis and we need, it's a very big discussion to talk about. um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. pregnancy, childbirth mm-hmm. and the effects. Yeah. Yeah. And then try to force that on someone by banning abortions. I mean, you, you I don't think that a lot of people realize the actual impact that it's having um, in Oklahoma. But um, so that kind of steering back towards the teacher conversation, I, I'm, I'm not really um, advocating for uh, the uh, abortion either way here. I'm more so saying, what are, what are we going to do as constituents in Oklahoma, as citizens in Oklahoma, as concerned Oklahomans, period, um, to make things better for the next generation? Um, how do we advocate this season? And I, I want to hear from the teachers. And so I created this survey for teachers. I, I do love hearing from the parents. Do love hearing from the students, but the teachers are the ones that are like dead smack in the middle. And so I want to know going into this legislative season what they want us to advocate for. And so there's this uh, guy, John Thompson. He was a uh, a teacher at John Marshall, and then he's a national writer as well. He wrote an op-ed for us. It's on our website, which is www.lwvokc.org. Um, and this teacher survey on there, it will take all of two minutes to fill out. I'm basically just asking, um, what grade do you teach? It is anonymous. I'm not asking your name. I'm not asking your email address. I'm not asking um, where you teach at or any of those things. I just want to know, what do you as a teacher feel like we should be advocating for um, this legislative season? And I, I just kind of want to hear your guys' opinion on um, you know, the November elections, everything has, there's so many people have went back and forth. I believe that, and I haven't had time to look this up, but we have the stance from uh, National League of Women Voters as far as vouchers goes. Um, just anything that you guys want to say right now, um, that is what I want to hear. Yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. The idea that the League of Women Voters has always taken the stance that strong public education um, strong schools in which we're educating all, all students and there's lots of equity. Strong public education leads to good democracy, good citizen engagement. And I was telling you, my friend who taught sociology, uh, I keep saying that wrong, sociology and philosophy of education at OU, uh, he had done his dissertation on 
that idea of good citizenship, like moral, he teaches a lot moral, you know, moral education and, and providing and making for good citizens. And it's public education, you know, coming come together with good educators, good uh, students ready to learn, eager, uh, excited, you know, one of uh, John Dewey's ideas about what makes for a good educational experience is when you, something resonates enough with a child, again, that that child feels empowered to learn and do more. And it's facilitated by good educator. You know, I mean, it's this beautiful, uh, I think, I feel like John Dewey's philosophy of education is a lot about having this uh, rich soil. You know, education is this rich soil and wit- and the, the kiddos are the seeds, you know what I mean? Like, and the teachers are pouring, I mean, it's just this, you know, you know what I mean? Like this beautiful world in which we can all flourish and collaborate and grow together. And it's this, so it really is, uh, Scout was right. The Dewey Decimal System is the way to, she, she called it the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> they were teaching the Dewey Decimal System, but it's, 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 it's beautiful and it's lovely. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I think just to continue to encourage that because that is what, uh, yeah, with the league, the league has a stance, public education, good public education. When we fund and provide for our kids, our kids, like Robert Putnam wrote the book, our kids, when we're providing for our kids, we're going to have better uh, democracy. We're going to have better citizens. We're going to have better communities. And that's progress. That's mm-hmm. that's a league stance. <laughs> yes, me. Well, I don't know how we advocate for this exactly, but I think teachers want to stop being vilified. And this this has been a long time coming. Honestly, if you think about when we were all in school, if if the teacher was thinking about calling your parents, oh, you know, you did not want that to happen. You did not want it to happen. And now if you tell a kid, well, okay, let's call your mom. They'll say, call her. Call my mommy. Call her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so now it's gone from that to now teachers are trying to indoctrinate Oklahoma children and all of this, this nonsense, honestly. I mean, I will tell you that I don't know one single teacher who had ever even heard the term critical race theory before that House Bill 1775. Wow. So clearly we're not teaching it if none of us even knew what it was to begin with. We're like, what is, what is that? Um, So it's just all this rhetoric, it's, um, it takes the morale of teachers down even further than it, than it was before. And, you know, COVID was difficult for, for everyone. It was difficult on teachers and I, teachers are just tired of it. The teachers that I have worked with in every single school I've ever been at, all they're trying to do is educate children so that they have good enough reading and math skills that they can at least survive in the world. If not, you know, go on to college and, you know, it's just we want, like you said, our kids, we want the kids of Oklahoma to be productive citizens and to have happy lives and have skills that they can feel proud of. And that's not the same for everyone. You know, people have different paths that they want to take in life, but teachers just want to make sure kids have a basic education. And with everything they have to do, they don't have time to sit around and plot for ways to indoctrinate children (laughs) and to teach things that 
that we didn't even know existed. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, when I taught, and maybe because my first teaching job was at, a, I was at a rural school, I was young, I was teaching speech and theater education, so I loved my basic speech classes. And the first thing I would always say, again, because it was speech and debate, so with debate, you know, but I would always say as I was going over kind of my own classroom norms and the rules of the classroom, I would say, question everything that I say. You know, that's, that would, I would always say that because it was, that was, I think, partly because of my communication degree from Southeastern Oklahoma State University. I, I should give a shout out to my wonderful teacher, uh, C.W. Mangrum. He's one of my absolute favorite teachers. He used to, you know, he taught communication theory. And in communication theory, is is a lie was one of the tenets, you know, of communication theory. In other words, question everything. It's biblical, by the way, too. We see through glass darkly. There's, you know, we have are stones in our eyes. I mean, it's a bi biblical concept that we, you know, we see the world through these different lenses, yeah. these many different lenses. And that's what CW was saying. We, we see through glass darkly is a lie. We, you know, and we, yeah. So I would say to my students, question what I say. And by the way, and I want to say this too, because we live in Oklahoma. When I first, when, when I was teaching at Westmore, mm -hmm. I don't remember the student's name, but you think about, I'm so grateful. I always said to my students, you know, we're accountable to one another. I love to use that word accountability. So I learned so much from my students as well as they, you know, they, I, I hopefully was guiding them and, but it was a shared power. It was a shared experience in the classroom in which, mm -hmm. and I remember I was talking about, I had read the invisible man by HG Wells. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about the invisible man. And he said, I thought that Ralph Ellison wrote invisible man. It was just, it's the difference in the invisible man versus invisible man. Yeah. I am so embarrassed to say that I didn't know Ralph Ellison. I was new to Oklahoma City when we moved here. In 96, we moved here. This would have been, so this would have been maybe like the 96, 97 school year. I didn't know Ralph Ellison. I didn't know that one of the world's greatest writers was born here in Oklahoma City. I've subsequently had the opportunity to read, you know, so I learned from my student because, you know, again, because it was just that I said, oh, no, it was H.G. Wells who wrote The Invisible Man. You know, like, thank goodness for that student who said, and I immediately read it. You know, I mean, I read it and because I was like, oh, he's a, how did I not know that? I'd lived in New York City by that time, too. I'd been in New York City. I'd, I'd had the opportunity to, I mean, I'm, I'm so excited to get to, I want to go and there, you can go to the Metropolitan Library System here in Oklahoma City and you can do a walking tour of Ralph Ellison. We in Oklahoma need to be bringing more books into the classroom, not, not thinking right. about banning books. And every Oklahoma student should read Ralph Ellison. We should be reading Invisible Man. We should come to Oklahoma. We should walk the path of Ralph Ellison in Oklahoma because he's telling Oklahoma's story, one of uh, an Oklahoma story that we need to tell. Ralph Ellison is a beautiful author. And so thank you to that student who, you know what I mean? Thank yeah. goodness I said to my students, always question me because <laughs> because they then teach me. And that's what good education is. It's collaborative yeah. teachers and students and community members bring in lots of guest speakers mm -hmm. and have, do you know what I mean? It's everybody. All of us, Chris Steele always says, all of us need all of us to succeed. We bring in as many children need as many people who have their back as they can have that's, that's right. their teacher in their classroom it's all of the folks it's their counselor at the classroom it's every one of us needs to be reaching out to Oklahoma school children right now and reading a book with them yeah <laughs> yes. yeah um there's a, a app Libby that's the main one that I'm using right now it's absolutely free it's connected to all of the libraries and there's a ton of audiobooks on there you can check books out the uh, virtual books out through it 
absolutely free. So uh, you, all you need is your library card number. Um, but, um, yeah. So in conclusion, I just want to say, you know, shout out to League of Women Voters for producing awesome women all throughout history. I'm very proud of us. Um, and we don't have all the answers, but we do have the spirit to try to find it. And that's what we're doing here. Um, and, and so I would just say, try to follow some of the bills. Um, it, you know, don't try to do it on your own because it's a very difficult process. But um, ACLU of Oklahoma, I want to say that they have a sheet on their website. Um, Andy Moore, let's fix this. I want to say he has one. Um, Indivisible Stillwater, Cindy Alexander, I want to say she has one. And there's probably a, a couple more. Um, you're more than welcome to email the office, office.admin at lwvokc.org, and I will get as much information to you as possible. And then please just fill out our teacher survey so um, by the, as we keep going through this legislative season, we can figure out what we need to do to make Oklahoma a better place. Tushalicious Talk is part of the Breaking Ice, Building Bridges community podcast platform brought to you by Possibilities, Inc., 